This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains descriptions of rape and physical abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On the evening of July 13, 1993, a group of five teenagers sat around a table at a pizza parlor in Broward County, Florida. They teased each other, laughing while play fighting over slices of pizza. The mood was light. They were young, and the night seemed full of possibility. One of the teens, an 18-year-old girl with burnished red hair, cleared her throat. All of the teenagers' eyes snapped towards her. Loving the attention, the delicious drama of it all, the redhead apparently told the teenagers that enough was enough. Bobby Kent had to be stopped. She was serious. Bobby was a menace. He treated Marty like a dog. He raped Alice. Even worse, he picked on people with mental disabilities. The others stared at her seduced by her urgency, the purported stakes. Finally, one of the teenagers asked, what were they supposed to do about Bobby? The girl smiled. It was simple, she said. They were going to kill Bobby Kent. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief, did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. 
Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Today we're discussing Lisa Connolly and Alice Willis. Lisa and Alice were two Florida teens whose friendship turned homicidal as they bonded over their common enemy, Alice's ex-boyfriend, Bobby Kent. Next week, we'll explain how Lisa and Alice persuaded a group of teenagers into murdering Bobby Kent in cold blood. And finally, we'll delve into the trial that followed the crime, as well as its profound effect on the lives of all the teens involved. Lisa Connolly was the light of her parents' life. After her mother, Maureen, suffered through a series of painful miscarriages, Lisa was finally born healthy and happy on July 31, 1974. With red hair and cherubic cheeks, she was the answer to all her mother's prayers. When Lisa arrived, Maureen quit her job to nurture her daughter full-time. Lisa's father, a pipe fitter, was just as doting. He provided Lisa and her mother with a comfortable lifestyle in Cedar Woods, a middle-class neighborhood in Broward County, Florida. Lisa was enamored with her little family. In second grade, she drew a crayon picture of her mother, her father, and herself beaming in front of their house. Under the drawing, she wrote, "'How good it is to belong to a family.'" But the bliss of those wide crayon smiles wouldn't last. Shortly after Lisa made that picture, her parents divorced and her father moved out of the house. His sudden abandonment had a detrimental effect on Lisa's state of mind. And it only worsened when her mother was forced to return to work. Maureen's new job as a garbage collector meant Lisa no longer felt like the center of her mother's life. When Lisa's father remarried, these feelings of abandonment were compounded. As he started a new family, his periodic calls grew further and further apart. Before we continue with Lisa's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. A study conducted by academic Lisa Mancini suggests that Girls and young women who have an unstable father figure are more liable to experience low self-esteem, promiscuous behavior, and become high school dropouts. These findings were borne out in Lisa's life. Her self-esteem plummeted in the wake of her father's desertion, and by the time she reached middle school in 1988, she was acting out. According to an article written by April Witt and Scott Hyam for the Miami Herald, by the time 14-year-old Lisa was in high school, her mother was losing control of her. After convincing her absentee dad to give her a car, she used her new vehicle to skip school on a whim. But when Maureen threatened to take the car away, Lisa acquiesced. She began attending classes in accordance with her mother's wishes, but she crashed the car shortly after. Then in 1990, 16-year-old Lisa dropped out of high school. According to Witt and Hyam, she then took a minimum wage job, working as a clerk at Dry Clean USA. 
This decision shattered all the dreams Maureen had for her daughter, but Lisa's dreams for herself were completely different. She didn't fantasize about college or a high school diploma. What she wanted was a boyfriend. And not just any boyfriend. Lisa wanted a grade A bona fide heartthrob. The walls of Lisa's bedroom were a testament to her longing. They were covered with cutouts of beefcake men in G-strings and sexy male supermodels. Above these pictures of unattainable beauty, Lisa pasted the caption, What Women Want. But at 16, Lisa had never had a boyfriend. Unlike the glossy, hard-bodied Adonises on her walls, Lisa considered herself pasty, chubby, and lonely. She couldn't help but compare herself to her friend, Alice Willis. To Lisa, Allie was perfect. Lisa had known Alice, or Allie as her friends called her, for 13 years since they were schoolgirls at St. Bernadette's Elementary. But that's where the similarities between the two girls ended. Where Lisa's hair was a dull red and often greasy, Allie's was long, blonde, and glossy. And where Lisa was chubby and insecure, Allie was lean, toned, and spirited. Lastly, while Lisa's father left her and her mother strapped for cash, Allie had plenty. Allie was upper class, a rich girl whose mother placated her with credit cards with seemingly no limit. According to Jim Schutz, author of Bully, by the time Allie was 12, she was renting limos with her mother's card to ferry her and her friends around town. In 1989, 14-year-old Allie was having sex and sneaking home after dark, reeking of wine coolers and cigarettes. Allie didn't need a wall plastered with photos of beach babes and heartthrobs. She was living it. Her reality was the stuff of Lisa's dreams. At least, that's the way it must have appeared to Lisa. In reality, Allie was dealing with her father's absence, much like Lisa had, by acting out. But unlike Lisa, Allie's bombshell good looks meant that the stakes of her rebellion were much higher, and the consequences far graver. According to Witt and Hyam's article for the Miami Herald, on October 26, 1989, 14-year-old Alice ran away from home with a friend. Both girls called two older boys they'd been dating and asked them to give them a ride to Miami. Instead, Witt and Hyam wrote that the boys, both members of the Zulu gang, drove Allie and her friend to a desolate overpass where they repeatedly raped them at knife point. The boys drove Allie and her friend to a gas station, but when a police officer spotted the traumatized girls trembling in the back seat, the teen gang members were arrested. After pleading guilty to sexual battery, kidnapping, assault, and robbery, they were each sentenced to over 10 years in prison. But their imprisonment did nothing for Allie's shattered sense of safety. In the aftermath of the attack, she was distraught. 
terrified that members of the Zulu gang would track her down in retaliation, she nailed blankets over her bedroom windows and insisted on switching high schools, paranoid that everybody at South Broward was gossiping about her attack. Her mother, Virginia, acquiesced. Allie was removed from school and enrolled at Cooper City High, but the new location did nothing to assuage Allie's fears, and soon after, she dropped out. In response, Virginia put Alice in therapy. However, no one informed the therapist that Allie had been raped. Allie spent their sessions closed off and silent. Lisa had no clue that her friend was battling so many demons. When Lisa looked at Allie, all she saw was her perfect blonde hair, her easy confidence, and the red 1988 Mustang her mother bought her. But Allie never lorded her privilege over Lisa. She was kind and compassionate, and despite their differences, they remained close. Allie knew Lisa longed for a boyfriend, so she tried to help. Just before Christmas in 1992, 18-year-old Lisa and 17-year-old Allie were hanging out, having the same argument they always did. Lisa complained about her appearance, comparing herself unfavorably to Allie, but Allie refused to hear it. She insisted Lisa looked just fine. Besides, catching a man had nothing to do with looks. According to her, it was all about attitude confidence. Then Allie had an idea. She dragged Lisa to a swimwear store at the local mall, her mother's credit card in hand. Then under Allie's encouraging eye, Lisa tried on bathing suit after bathing suit. Finally, Allie crowed at the sight of a particular one-piece. It was perfect, she insisted. Lisa had to have it. Allie marched to the cash register and charged the suit to her mom's card. The one piece cost almost $100, but Allie didn't blink. It was a small price to pay for her friend's happiness. And Lisa did feel happy. Hanging out with Allie always had that effect on her. When they were together, she always felt optimistic, like anything she wanted could be hers for the taking. And when she and Allie stopped for lunch at the public supermarket, this feeling grew. There, at the deli counter, Lisa saw Martin Marty Puccio for the very first time. Even in the ugly fluorescent light, 19-year-old Marty appeared to Lisa like a god, a specimen of physical perfection ripped straight off of her bedroom wall. She drank him in, her eyes raking over his bulging biceps, his pretty hazel eyes. Lisa's reverie was interrupted when the boy standing next to Marty asked her what was in her shopping bag. At five foot eight, 19-year-old Bobby Kent was equally handsome, but there was a hard glint in his dark brown eyes. Lisa informed Bobby that she'd just purchased a swimsuit. To Lisa's surprise, Bobby responded by shoving Marty so hard that he stumbled. Then Bobby snickered and said, ask the bitches to meet us at North Beach, we'll party. 
Marty did as Bobby commanded, inviting Lisa and Allie to the beach. Lisa eagerly accepted his invitation, her heart soaring. But then Bobby cut in again. He looked at Lisa with a smirk and informed the girls that Allie would be his date, since Marty was into full-figured girls. Lisa shrank, humiliated. But as the girls walked out of the supermarket, Lisa couldn't help but feel elated. Bobby's words couldn't erase her excitement. She had a date, and not just any date. Lisa Connolly, the girl who was abandoned by her father and ignored by all the boys at school, had a date with a bona fide dreamboat. It was a miracle. And in the face of all that, Bobby Kent was irrelevant. Up next, Lisa finds out her charming prince, Marty, is battling demons of his own. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1992, 18-year-old Lisa Connolly thought she'd never land a boyfriend, but now she had a date with the hottest guy she'd ever laid eyes on. Even better, she felt at ease knowing her best friend, 17-year-old Allie Willis, would be by her side the whole time. The two girls met Bobby and Marty on the shores of North Beach, but soon they were in the back seat of Bobby's beat-up Camaro, rap music pumping from the speakers. Bobby pulled up outside a liquor store and commanded Marty to go buy them a bottle of tequila. According to Jim Schutz, when Marty balked at spending his own money, Bobby twisted his ear hard and snarled, what's that boy, what did you say? Did you say, yes sir boss, I sure will buy that booze for you now boss? Marty shouted with pain, and yet the minute Bobby released him, he didn't complain or fight back. Instead, he shot out of the car to carry out Bobby's orders. Lisa and Allie sat in the back seat, shocked. But Bobby just laughed. Later, Bobby pulled the car into a deserted lot and beckoned Allie into the front. His past behavior seemingly forgotten, Allie climbed into the front seat and the two began to have sex. Meanwhile, Marty and Lisa sat together in the back seat. Lisa was freaking out. She had never so much as even kissed a boy. Yet when Marty gently pulled her towards him, she gave herself over to him gladly. As they had sex, her heart pounded in her chest. Later at home, Lisa felt elated as she recounted the night they'd had together. Marty was perfect. Sexy and sweet, he was an absolute dream. But Lisa had no idea Marty's life was more like a nightmare.
Marty Puccio and Bobby Kent had been best friends since Bobby's family moved to Broward County, Florida in 1980. From the age of seven, the two were so inseparable that they were nicknamed the Siamese twins by neighbors. Their constant togetherness highlighted their physical disparities. Marty was lean, while Bobby, even at seven, appeared stockier, naturally muscular, and he used this to his advantage. From the early days of their friendship, Bobby constantly beat Marty up. Even the smallest infraction could set Bobby off. Like Marty's love for dressing up in superhero capes, an activity Bobby branded childish and queer. Marty found an escape from Bobby's bullying by throwing himself wholeheartedly into Florida's surfing culture. And by the middle of 1984, 11-year-old Marty had become an accomplished surfer. Impressed by his wunderkind skills, a group of older surfers took him under their wing. Bobby resented Marty's new friends. He hated the fact that his puny sidekick was considered cool by the older surfer boys. So one day, Bobby went with Marty to the beach. While Marty took a break from the waves, Bobby asked him to buy him a snack from the beach's concession stand. When Marty asked Bobby for money, Bobby punched him hard within view of the other surfers. Concerned about their younger friend, the boys closed in to retaliate. But Marty, his nose bleeding from Bobby's punch, stopped them. Then he hurried off to buy Bobby's snack. Later, when they returned home from the beach, Bobby apologized, saying that Marty was his best friend. After a long beat, Marty sighed and forgave him. Marty always forgave Bobby for his blow-ups, and while the way Marty defended Bobby may have baffled the older boys, his behavior is actually typical of someone in an abusive relationship. According to loveisrespect.org, a project of the National Domestic Violence Hotline, people stay in abusive relationships for a myriad of reasons. They might fear their abuse may get worse if they try to leave, or they may believe their abuser's behavior is normal. And in some cases, victims feel so belittled that they begin to think the abuse is their fault. Marty likely remained friends with Bobby due to a combination of these factors. Because they met at such a young age, it's also possible that Marty had no other frame of reference for what a friendship was supposed to look like. And Bobby's consistent put-downs likely caused him to believe he deserved the abuse. And so Marty stayed by Bobby's side in spite of the violence. Wherever Bobby went, Marty followed. And whatever Bobby did, Marty was expected to do the same. In 1987, 14-year-old Bobby developed a passion for bodybuilding and began pressuring Marty to join him at the YMCA to pump iron. By this point, Bobby's physique had matured, his body filling out. But Marty was still lean and gangly. He balked at the idea of spending hours at the gym, positive that no matter what he did, he'd never be able to match Bobby's muscles. 
But Bobby told Marty that all he had to do to bulk up was take steroids. Marty pushed back. He didn't like the idea of pumping himself full of hormones. But Bobby was relentless. He took steroids already, so he could attest that they worked. So Marty finally gave in and also allegedly began to take steroids. They worked out together for two hours every day after school. And Marty realized Bobby was right. The daily regime of pumping iron and hormones transformed him into a hard-bodied beefcake. And he loved it. His muscular frame improved his confidence and made him feel like a man. But his new bulk took a toll on his surfing. Marty used to be graceful on a board, but his clumsiness meant that he couldn't keep up with the other guys. And soon, Marty had fallen out with his protective older surfer friends, leaving him entirely at Bobby's mercy. Bobby already had a violent temper, but the steroids only made things worse. According to research published by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, people who misuse steroids report more anger as well as more fights, verbal aggression, and violence towards those close to them. And over time, Bobby's brutal behavior began to intensify, slowly taking over more and more of his and Marty's relationship. By 1989, 16-year-old Bobby was regularly flying off the handle and beating Marty to a pulp. Sometimes he even commanded his Doberman Pinscher to attack Marty, leaving his ankles and calves torn and bloody. But the most egregious way Bobby worked off his sadistic tendencies was by tormenting people with developmental disabilities. Bobby would often force Marty to hang out with him in their high school's special education wing. There, they'd bide their time, waiting for a student with disabilities to walk by. Once they did, Bobby and Marty would take turns hurling a football at the student's head until their victim was crying. According to Jim Schutz, it was during these occasions that Marty, not Bobby, lost control of himself and became more violent. But according to researchers, this isn't uncommon. A study presented at the Pediatric Academic Society's meeting explains that victims of bullying are at a higher risk of showing aggressive behaviors themselves. These behaviors may involve acting aggressive in order to fend off future bullying attempts, or worse, engaging in bullying of previously uninvolved peers. It's very possible that in a way, Marty bullied students with disabilities to defend himself. By taking the abuse even further than Bobby did, Marty was possibly looking to demonstrate his aggression. It was the only way Marty knew to deter Bobby from bullying him without directly confronting him. But if that was Marty's intention, it was futile. No matter how much he tormented other students, Bobby's violence continued. And as their friendship grew more toxic, Bobby's appetites devolved in kind. Despite his self-professed heterosexuality, Bobby developed an interest in gay pornography, and before long, he introduced Marty to his new passion. According to Jim Schutz, 
Marty was revolted, not so much by the sexual aspect of what was going on in the videos, but by the cruelty. Bobby's porn skewed towards the sadistic, with overtones of brutality, torture, and compulsion. But when Marty turned away from the disturbing images on the screen, Bobby straddled him and yanked him by the hair, forcing Marty to watch. But Bobby's interests didn't stop at watching gay porn. Soon he began expressing a desire to film and distribute a pornographic film of his own. Soon he dragged Marty to the Copa, a local gay cabaret and disco, and pressured him to perform a striptease. Marty had no desire to dance in a gay bar, but he'd learned the consequences of denying Bobby, so he gave in. At first, 18-year-old Marty was nervous to take his clothes off in front of a full club, but soon Marty, who had always struggled with low self-esteem, began to enjoy the attention from the crowds of men. He reveled in their whoops and cheers as he sensually took off one piece of clothing after another. But Bobby hated that Marty was enjoying himself. According to Jim Schutz, though Bobby was the one who forced Marty to watch gay porn and pressured him to dance at the Copa, he flew into a rage whenever he decided Marty was in fact acting gay. It was in these moments that Bobby subjected Marty to his most brutal beatings. But Bobby decided the physical abuse wasn't enough. To ensure that Marty didn't, quote, turn gay, he insisted that Marty have sex with women. But Bobby was the one who decided who Marty slept with. And he demanded that Marty only have sex with, quote, fat girls. And this is where Lisa Connolly came in. In 1993, shortly after 18-year-old Lisa Connolly had sex with Marty for the first time, he invited her over to his house. Marty said his parents were out of town for the weekend and he wanted to see her. Ecstatic, Lisa asked her friend Sharon to drop her off. But when she arrived at Marty's and saw that Bobby was there, Lisa invited Sharon to join them. She didn't want Bobby to feel like a third wheel. What followed was 48 hours of sex, dope, and alcohol. But while actual intercourse occurred only within heterosexual pairings, quote, some of the play was between Marty and Bobby, always in the form of simulated, but not actual sex. When Sharon asked if the two boys were gay, Bobby burst out laughing, and then he resumed miming more sex acts with Marty. But Lisa didn't care. She couldn't believe Marty wanted her at all. She was just happy to be there, despite the strange relationship between the two boys. But her feelings changed when towards the end of the second day, Bobby snapped. After seeing a loaf of bread sitting open on the kitchen counter, Bobby accused Marty of leaving it out. Then, before Lisa's eyes, he dragged Marty to the bedroom and slammed the door shut. Lisa and Sharon sat horrified as they listened to Marty's whimpers and pleas emanating from the next room as Bobby brutally beat him up. When the two emerged, 
Marty's right eye was swollen shut, his mouth puffy and bloody. He'd clearly been crying. Bobby told the girls it was time for them to go. And that's when Lisa knew. Bobby wasn't some irritating presence she could just ignore. Bobby was a problem. Coming up, Lisa tries to figure out what to do about Bobby Kent. Now, back to the story. In mid-1993, 18-year-old Lisa Connolly was at a loss. She was desperately infatuated with her boyfriend, Marty Puccio, but his best friend Bobby Kent was always around physically abusing Marty. And to make matters worse, Bobby had begun encouraging Marty to abuse Lisa, too. Early in the summer of 1993, Marty invited Lisa over to his house. When she arrived, Bobby was waiting there with him. Goaded by Bobby, Marty made Lisa take off her clothes in front of them. Then the two boys beat Lisa with a broad leather weightlifting belt, after which point they both took turns having sex with her, taunting her weight all the while. Lisa didn't blame Marty for the attack. She could see how much control Bobby had over him. She decided that the only way to get Bobby to leave her and Marty alone was to distract him. So she called up her best friend, Allie Willis. Allie hadn't spoken to Bobby since she'd had sex with him in his car. To them, the encounter was just a casual one-off, and in the months since their rendezvous, Allie began dating someone else. But Lisa didn't let this dissuade her. She knew that besides starting a new relationship, Allie had also developed an interest in witchcraft. According to author Jim Schutz, this involved Allie sneaking into cemeteries at night, doing drugs, having sex, and muttering mumbo-jumbo incantations taken from comic books. So in order to persuade Allie, Lisa decided to capitalize on her alternative tastes. Lisa told Allie that, quote, Bobby was into some really weird sex, like spooky shit that you wouldn't believe. This sparked Allie's curiosity. So when Lisa invited her to hang out with her, Marty, and Bobby, Allie eagerly agreed. To Lisa's delight, their first double date went really well. Allie and Bobby didn't even have sex. Instead, they had a sweet conversation about their future hopes and dreams. Allie was so impressed by Bobby's goal to open his own car repair shop that she called her mother and told her she'd met a boy who was marriage material. But her positive feelings towards Bobby wouldn't last. The next time the four teenagers hung out, Bobby and Allie went to Bobby's bedroom to fool around while Lisa and Marty sat in the living room. Allie was excited to have sex with Bobby again. She thought he was attractive and was impressed by his surprisingly mature goals. So when Bobby shut the door, she willingly took off her clothes and looked at Bobby, her eyes hopeful. But when he responded by popping a gay porn video into the VCR, Allie was stunned. Suddenly, Bobby pinned her down on the bed, slapped her hard, and sexually assaulted her. 
As he did so, he forced Allie to tell him that he was the best sex she'd ever had. Allie did, crying the entire time. Afterward, devastated and furious, Allie decided she was done. She wanted nothing more to do with Bobby Kent. And unfortunately for Lisa, this meant that Bobby was back to crashing her dates with Marty. He continued physically abusing Marty and emotionally tormenting Lisa. This toxic dynamic wore Lisa down. She spent her days anxious and miserable, feeling hopeless that she and Marty could find a way out of Bobby's abuse. Things came to a head when Lisa discovered that she was pregnant. Lisa knew she had to tell Marty sooner rather than later, so she asked her cousin, a sweet, unassuming 19-year-old named Derek DeVerco, to drive her to Marty's house. Derek was happy to comply. Lisa's mother, Maureen, was concerned about Lisa's relationship with Marty, and she had asked Derek to look out for Lisa. And so, Derek drove her to Marty's house, aware that something off was going on between the couple. As usual, Bobby was there. Derek agreed to distract Bobby so Lisa could have a chance to speak to Marty alone. As Marty and Lisa retreated to the kitchen, Bobby honed in on Derek. He immediately asked Derek if he wanted to see something. Derek shrugged, why not? Then Bobby popped a gay porn video into the VCR. Derek was immediately turned off. Seeing his reaction, Bobby began freaking out. His veins popped from his face, his eyes bulging. He taunted Derek, asking, quote, what's the matter, you don't like my tape man? Unlike Marty, who'd been so beaten down that he always gave in to Bobby, Derek stood up to him. He told Bobby that no, he didn't like the tape, not in the slightest. Bobby immediately backed down. But before he could eject it from the VCR, the two heard a commotion coming from the kitchen. Derek ran into the other room to see that Marty had Lisa backed into a corner. He was squeezing Lisa's wrists and screaming, get the money and get it taken care of. Derek flew into action. He shoved Marty off Lisa and helped his distraught cousin out of the house. As the two drove away, Marty and Bobby taunted Lisa with giggling calls of, bye-bye, Shamu. Derek was horrified. He told Lisa that she had to break up with Marty, that both him and Bobby were sick. But Lisa wouldn't hear it. As far as she was concerned, it wasn't Marty that was the problem. It was Bobby. He was the one who beat up Marty. He was the one who raped Allie. And he was the one who made Marty cruel and provoked him into treating Lisa badly. Without Bobby, she and Marty would have no problems. With her mind still reeling, Lisa called Marty and asked him to meet her at the beach. Once the pair met up, Lisa told Marty she loved him. She couldn't stand to see Bobby picking on him. At first, Marty brushed Lisa off, but she was persistent. 
She asked him why he stayed friends with someone who treated him so badly. Then Marty's voice broke. He confessed to her that Bobby's abuse had been going on for so long that he didn't know how to get out of it. He didn't know how to get away from him. Lisa suggested that Marty move away, get out of town. But Marty shot the idea down. He didn't even have a high school diploma. How was he supposed to start over? No, Marty said. The only way to stop Bobby was to kill him. He said it as kind of a joke, a piece of dark humor shared between lovers. But Lisa wasn't laughing. Why not, she asked. Why couldn't they kill him? Marty looked at Lisa like she was crazy, but he loved her brand of crazy. He was giddy at the concept. Bobby Kent, just poof, lifted out of his life like he'd never existed. Could it be possible? Lisa insisted that it was, and after their whispered conversation on the beach, things began to move at warp speed. Lisa looped in Allie, telling her about her idea to kill Bobby. Allie laughed. She loved it. Then Allie called her friend, Heather Swallers, and her new boyfriend, Donnie Semenek. She told them that she was going to help her friend, Lisa, murder a guy. Heather, not taking Allie seriously, just responded, cool. So Allie, Marty, Lisa, Heather, and Donnie all agreed to meet at a local pizza parlor to discuss the logistics. As they planned, the five teenagers treated it like a game, a hilarious joke among friends. But as Lisa held court at their restaurant table, listing out Bobby's numerous crimes, Donnie, Allie's boyfriend, wasn't sure it was a joke. Lisa seemed serious. But as the teenagers brainstormed ideas over soda and pizza about how they'd go about murdering Bobby, Donnie felt his unease slip away. Sure, they'd talk and scheme, but ultimately he knew it would all come to nothing. Ultimately, Bobby Kent would be fine, wouldn't he? Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Lisa Connolly and Allie Willis's story. We'll follow the two teenagers as they take their plot against Bobby Kent's life from a joke between friends to a brutal reality. For more information on Lisa Connolly and Alice Willis, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Bully, A True Story of High School Revenge by Jim Schutz, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Abiyageli Adimegu, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.